have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. So Paul is speaking here about what he calls the mystery of godliness. Uh, well, we're starting with a question. Who's that singing? Because you see, the scholars reckon that when Paul uh, has this little stanza here where he says he appeared in a body, he's referring to Jesus obviously, he appeared in a body, he was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The scholars have pretty well agreed that this is a fragment of an early Christian hymn, something that they would sing to each other in their gatherings. And it's Paul who's doing the singing. Now, last week, when we were looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, we discovered that just before that, he had burst out into praise. This happens with Paul every now and again. And you need to be careful when Paul begins to praise, because it's a time to pay attention and you never quite know what's going to happen. Uh, ask any jailer in Philippi <laughs> what happens when Paul begins to sing. Okay? And... Uh, and here he is singing. He's got this fragment of a song in his heart. I was interested that, that, that Liz referred to herself and a friend who had a, a, a song in their heart through the week uh, that clearly pertained this morning. There was no question that God was in that moment. I, I sensed very much that Psalm 84 was right for this place this, this morning. It's certainly right for me. So whether anybody else benefited, I don't know. But, uh, but God's word is always living and active. And it always has a target, and it never returns to God empty. So, here's a song, and it's Paul who's singing. And this is what he's saying. Behold, the question, the, the, he says, the mystery of godliness is great. The mystery of godliness is great. Now, we need to understand something, that the word mystery, when it appears in the New Testament, usually doesn't mean what we think a mystery is. For us, a mystery is something inscrutable, something unfathomable, something that we can't get our heads around. But when the apostles talk of a mystery, what they're speaking of is something that was mysterious, but has actually now been revealed in Jesus. Okay? So, what they're actually saying, beyond all question, the revelation of godliness is great. And what is the revelation of, God, of godliness? Well, a better question would give you a clue. Who is the mystery of godliness? Who is the revelation of godliness? Jesus. Our Lord Jesus. He's the revelation of godliness. So this is what Paul's saying here. There is... There's something I think most Christians need to get their heads around. And it's what the Bible calls I think there would be a few less Bibles gathering dust on shelves if we understood what it costs to give us God's Word. William Tyndale was burned at the stake for giving us most of what's in our New Testament today. Even the King James Version that people swear by and swear that there's no better translation than the King James. It was good enough for those 
دیگه رو بعد خیلی وقتی که The King James stands on William Tyndale's translation work and William Tyndale was burned at the stake for his efforts for trying to put the gospel into the common language of the people of the day and his, as he was dying at the stake he was praying not for himself but for the King of England his prayer was Lord open the King of England's eyes those who witnessed bear witness that that was his dying words Lord open the King of England's eyes and there is a cost behind our Bible and Paul's light afflictions that he loves to call them in this euphemistic way were anything but light have a look at just a little snatch that he gives us in 2 Corinthians 11 of some of the things that he was through he wasn't boasting he was just trying to help the Corinthians understand uh, just how precious the gospel was and how much the love of God controlled his life everywhere he went he knew he he could expect jail and suffering in every town five times he received the 39 lashes minus one (laughs) with some strange kind of twisted cynical irony um, the authorities of those days felt that if you gave a man 40 lashes you were likely to kill him so they cut it back to 39 Okay, I'll leave it to work that one out but five times he received 39 lashes. Uh, any one of those lashings could have killed him. <coughs> Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Four times he was shipwrecked. Now, when you read that passage in Corinthians, he'll say, Three times. Am I arguing with Paul? Yes, I am arguing with Paul. Because although he said he was shipwrecked three times, he didn't know he was going to be shipwrecked again on his way to Rome a few years later. So four times he was shipwrecked. He was a day and night adrift in the sea. And he says he was in danger from rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, in the cities, in the deserts, in the seas, and from false believers. So, there's something of the cost. This man gave us 66% of our New Testament. Two-thirds of what you've got in your New Testament came from the writings of this man. And yet, that's the background to it all. So let's give praise and glory to God that he has raised up such men as Paul and William Tyndale and thousands of others down the centuries who have brought us our Bible at such a cost. Don't, please, don't let any of us let it gather dust on the shelves. This book should be in our laps constantly. We should be sitting with our newspaper in one hand and our Bible in another because almost everything that's going on in our headlines today is talked about in the Bible or was even predicted in the Bible. So we need to get a grip on that. So, let's move on. In Romans, Paul was talking about this great discovery that God's righteousness is the thing we need to understand the world has its understanding of righteousness even if you go to Berlin prison you'll find that they have an understanding of righteousness, the prisoners have a pecking order with pedophiles at the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the, of the heap and, and the guys who've managed to swindle their banks are probably heroes ok and there's a pecking order, they have a sense of cardinal sins and venial sins within the Roman church 
Um, and, and the whole idea there in that system of, of, of theology is that some sins are worse than others. Some sins are, are terminal. Some sins can be forgiven. Some can't be. It's, it's a system, well, they didn't get it out of the Bible. Let's just put it that way. But Romans makes it absolutely clear that all have sinned. And God has punished sin once for all. When Jesus came, he came to bear all our sins in his body on the tree. So God's righteousness is revealed in condemnation. All have sinned. There are no excuses and no exceptions. Throughout the entire world you will never find anyone who has satisfied God's righteous requirement. And his righteousness is revealed in condemnation. Because condemnation is the default condition for every one of us. King David knew that. All that, all those years back, in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean his wife was, was an impure woman. It doesn't, it doesn't mean his mother was an impure woman. It means that she herself was a sinner. And she was born in sin. And he was born in sin. And we're all born in sin. That's our default condition. That is why John 3.17 should be on our lips as much as John 3.16. Because it's not just a case that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's also the case in the next verse that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Why would God not send his son to condemn the world? Answer, because the world was already condemned. God had no intentions of bringing more condemnation on a world that was already in a state of, of deserving judgment under God. He sent his son precisely to lift condemnation from our lives. Do we begin to see something of the mercy of God? in all of this. this this astonishing God and we see God's righteousness in Romans but we also see a wrong righteousness in Romans the wrong righteousness is the righteousness of the Jews in those days the righteousness of religiosity we'll talk a wee bit more about that a bit later on but there is no such thing as DIY salvation let's just put it that way this, this way around there is no such thing as DIY salvation. So we're thinking about God's righteousness. And Romans 1.17 says the just shall live by faith. And funnily enough, that little quote, which actually Paul, Paul was cribbing there from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He quoted from Habakkuk to support his argument at Romans 1.17. But he uses it again another twice at Galatians 3.11 and at Hebrews 10.38. And if you read those verses, you'll discover that in each, each of those, uh, it's, it's strange, but, but the, 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 the setting in Romans explains what it means to be the just. Galatians explains to mean how we should live. And Hebrews shows us that we are to live by faith. <coughs> The just shall live by faith. This text, this tiny little text, Romans 1.17, had a colossal impact at at least two major points in, in history for all of us. In 15.17, it totally transformed a priest by the name of Martin Luther. 
1517, he came across this. This was a man who, he looked as though sometimes he had epileptic fits. They weren't epileptic fits. But he was in such a state of hysteria about his sinfulness before God that every so often he would just throw himself down in what looked like a fit. He couldn't bear it. He would, he would be going in, into the church to lead a service and he had this overwhelming sense of guilt and he just was crushed by it. And this man was in a complete mess, an absolute turmoil, until one day he had to read Romans 1.17 and suddenly the truth dawned on him. He said, it was like heaven opened and he walked in. Because for the first time in his life he understood that God gives us righteousness. He imputes righteousness to us. He doesn't wait for us to prove our righteousness. He gives it to us as a free gift on the back of what his son did on our behalf. That's what Martin Luther came to understand. That we are justified by grace through faith. An astonishing discovery totally transformed him and the next thing you knew this man was looking at the Bible in a whole new light and looking at the Roman church in a whole new light and he had 95 points of disagreement with the Roman church which he nailed to the door of the cathedral. That was how they did things in those days. If you were calling people for a debate you took the basis of your debate and you nailed it to the door of the church. And that's what he did. Only there were 95 points of disagreement with what the church was officially teaching. 95. And when they put him on trial as a heretic, he said, well, it's unthinkable to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. He had discovered the truth in the scripture. It set him free and he sparked off what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Brothers and sisters, you and I would not be here today but for Romans 1.17 and its impact on Martin Luther. How awesome is that? That the Word of God, in one tiny little piece of the Word of God, would have that impact on one man and on the whole of European history. World history, for that matter. <coughs> but it happened again. Because Martin Luther went on to write a commentary on the epistle to the Romans. And the preface to his commentary had a colossal impact on a man called John Wesley, 200 years later in 1738. John Wesley went out as a missionary to America to, to convert the Indians. He went to Georgia. <coughs> and in his journal on the way out, he said, the Lord has sent me to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? He knew. He knew at that stage in his life that he didn't know the Lord he was preaching about. He just felt that he had this unction upon him that he had, had to go that God was sending him. And he came back from America really discouraged. But he met on ship, he met some Moravians. Now I don't know if you know much about the Moravian Brotherhood, but look them up on Google. You'll find the Moravians on Google. And a lovely bunch of people. Their leader was a man called Count von Zinzendorf. They were formed around about 1727 at a place called Hernhut in what is now Germany, Saxony in those days. <coughs> and, and these were people, mostly young men, mostly in their 20s. And they decided 
that they needed to covenant, to pray, to intercede. They had no sooner formed themselves into a, into a, a, a team who were going to seek to bring the gospel to their, to their nation and to other places, then they began bickering and fighting among themselves and everything was going wrong. And so the leaders said, look, we need to pray. So they, they covenanted, they made a pact together that a few of them were going to pray and they were going to pray round the clock. They were going to take it in shifts and go round the clock. 24-hour prayer. And that prayer meeting went on for, wait for it, 100 years. And that prayer meeting lasted for 100 years. 65 years after they started, they had sent 300 missionaries to every part of the world. It was an astonishing movement. And the Moravians were on a ship that John Wesley just happened to be on in the way by. And when he talked to these Moravians, he saw a confidence in them that he knew he didn't have. That he saw a, 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 a relationship with Jesus and these people that was real for them, and he knew he didn't have that. And he came back, and he went very unwillingly one night to a meeting in Aldersgate Street in London. And he says in his own journal, when he was listening to Martin Luther's preface to the, the commentary on the Romans, he found his heart strangely warmed, and he knew that God had forgiven him, even him. That was his conversion. That was the moment in which the minister became a convert. Isn't that amazing? And that's all out of Romans 1.17, speaking to Martin Luther, who 200 years later spoke to Paul of Tarsus, spoke to John Wesley. And that's not all. Because you see, John Wesley and the evangelical revival of the 18th century brought forth people like Goli Globerforce who dedicated his entire life to working in the parliamentary system to bring an end to the foul trade of slavery. This whole nation's economy was built upon the misery of slaves from all over the world. And Wilberforce had a conscience about this thing. He hated this. And it took, it took almost all his life and almost all his health. And he was almost a dead man when the news broke that Parliament had finally caved in and decided to make it illegal. So there you are, Romans 1.17, Luther, 200 years later, Wesley, and suddenly Roberforce, and you've got massive social reform coming in in the back of the preaching of the Gospel through Wesley and Whitfield and people like that. Now when you think of this, let, think with me for a moment about, about Israel. Some people say that you cannot find grace in the Old Testament. Some people say that the Old Testament doesn't preach the gospel. I want to tell you that is nuts. That is just nuts. I'm sorry for using theological language, but, you know, it's crazy. What did God give to his people? He gave them three things. He gave them the law, and he gave them the priesthood, and he gave them a system of sacrifices by which they could approach him and be right with him. Now, just consider this for a moment. The Jewish leadership, they tried to prove their righteousness to God by obeying the law. By the time Jesus came along, 
the rabbis had, had developed a system where everything rested on the law and establishing your righteousness through the law. But it couldn't be done. How do we know it couldn't be done? Well, if it could be done, God would not have just given them the law. He, he, he would have just given them the law. He would not have given them a priesthood. And he would not have given them a system of sacrifices. Because you don't need priests, and you don't need a system of sacrifice to approach God if all you've got to do is just obey the rules and, and impress God with your righteousness. So way back there in Old Testament times, the law, the priesthood, and the sacrifice, that trinity of God's provision, was actually testifying all those years back, right at the beginning of, of Israel's walk with God, that DIY salvation is not, is not a possibility. God provided the means to approach him. God alone provided the means. Even as far back as Abraham, the word went forth that the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. It's always been that way. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It's always been in the eternal counsels of God. So in actual fact, the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system were calling the people of Israel to faith. Not to legalistic righteousness, but to faith in God who had provided for them in this way. So, let's think for a wee bit about the mystery of godliness. How are we for time? Are we okay? How long have I got? Sorry? As long as you need. As long as I need. Can I have that in writing? Okay. <laughs> the mystery of godliness. We saw already that when Paul said mystery of godliness, he meant something that had been mysterious but is now revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the paradigm. If you want to know what godliness looks like, then you look at Jesus, who has done all things well. That's godliness. He is our righteousness. So we're going to think a wee bit just now about its scope and its aim, and we're going to think about its alternative and its enjoyment. What's the alternative to the mystery of godliness? And how do we enjoy this mystery of godliness that, that God has provided for us in Jesus? Okay. We are hopeful, not hopeless, because of what God has done for us in Jesus. And life without Jesus is, is a hopeless existence. If it all depends on us, then it's a life of misery. We cannot possibly please God without Jesus. We cannot possibly match up to God's requirement. We cannot meet God's standards. There is no one who does good, no not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's an impossible task. It's utterly hopeless without Jesus. But because of Jesus, godliness for us is, a, is, is full of hope. And the mystery of godliness has an alternative. It's called hoping for the best. And that's, what, that's how a lot of people are going through life. They've got this sense within themselves, a subconscious sense, that they are accountable to someone other than themselves. That there has to be a God. Most, if people are thinking at all, then they're noticing that, you know, the, the sky's 
proclaim God's handiwork. Paul said in the letter to the Romans that men are without excuse because the invisible qualities of God are clearly revealed in what he has made. So men are without excuse. The whole of creation, the whole of nature is declaring the glory of God. And so nature itself is, is a preacher that is accessible to everyone in the face of the earth. If we choose to ignore what nature is clearly saying to us and come up with some cockamamie idea that somehow or other we should bow down to the sun or bow down to the stars or that we should, we should worship the trees or whatever, then we really are making it up as we go along. Because nobody seriously believes that stuff. Hoping for the best. Just hoping that at the end of the day, somehow or other, when we finally have to face God and he's got a ledger there that we'll have balanced the book in such a way that there'll be enough good deeds in our, in our credit to, to, to balance off against the bad things that we know we've done. And that's, that's how many people envisage it. And it is a case of hoping for the best. There's no confidence there. Do you know that there is actually no hope of salvation within Islam? Within Islam, there is no hope of salvation at all. The only possible way in which you can be sure that you will be well received in the afterlife is if you have died as a martyr for the cause of Allah. That's the only way. That's why so many of these young guys are queuing up. They are fed a fairy story. They are told that if, if they die in the cause of Allah, they will be received as heroes, as martyrs, and they will be immediately blessed with endless banqueting and erotic pleasures, 72 virgins per bloke, basically. That's the, that's the rubbish that the mullahs are telling these young men. And they're, they're going to die for the cause of their God when our God has died for our cause. And then we still have clergymen here and there who tell us that we all worship the same God. Hello? So, the mystery of godlessness has an alternative. <coughs> and that's it. The misery of make-believe. That's all there is. That's the only alternative there is to the mystery of godliness. The misery of make-believe. You see, hope, Christian hope, is not hoping for the best. It's not crossing your fingers behind your back and hoping it's all going to work out okay. Christian hope is trust, hard at work. Christian hope is trust, hard at work. When, when we begin to know God, and by the way, this is the key to the whole thing, do you realize that when we, when we break bread together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the words that Jesus used on the night he was betrayed, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. What was he pointing to when he said that? He was pointing back to Jeremiah. He was pointing back to some 600 years before he was born, when Jeremiah was, was told to God by God that he was to prophesy that God would create a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that new covenant, he said, the fundamental thing at the heart of the new covenant would be this. 
wait for this. They shall all know me. We don't have a God who sits with a beatific smile on his face, all completely detached from our troubles and our, our, our worries and our fears, like Buddha, who says, well, you know, I'm sorry about what you're going through, guys, but you know, I'm in nirvana now. It doesn't really, doesn't really bother me. Our God has worn our flesh. Our God is engaged and involved in everything that concerns us. He has numbered the very hairs of our heads and he sees the sparrow fall from the tree. This is our God. You could not exaggerate his love for you. You could not exaggerate his mercy for you. You will never find superlatives to describe what he has done for you in Jesus. And when you finally see our Savior, you're going to be absolutely blown away with joy and praise and gladness at who this wonderful Savior really is. When you go home today, I would suggest, please, go and read Daniel 10. Go and have a look at this appearance of Jesus to Daniel in ancient Babylon. Because it clearly is the Lord Jesus that Daniel meets with his hair like wool and his eyes like torches of fire and his legs and his arms like burnished bronze and a voice like rushing mighty waters. This is our Jesus. This is the one we worship. Not someone who tells us that we've got to groom our children to die for his cause and put a bomb belt on and go and blow his enemies to bits. We worship a God who sent his son to be blown to bits for us. This is our God. And so the only alternative to the mystery of godliness is this misery of make-believe. Thank God. Thank God today if you're not living a life of make-believe. Thank God if you know the truth. Jesus said if, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Hold to my words. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. And this is where we come to what for me is one of the most astonishing aspects of the mystery of godliness. And it's this, that God's intention for each one of us is that not only do we marvel at the mystery, at the revelation of godliness in Jesus, but we get a chance to marvel that God is planning to put that same godliness into you and me. He's planning to give us the mastery itself. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be given the mastery of ourselves. Does that sound like something desirable? Does it? To be given complete mastery over ourselves? How often do we get through a day and get to the end of the day and get before God and say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. How often do we let him down? How often are our words just cold, unfeeling, insensitive? How often are our thoughts just bad company for him? How often do we sit down and watch a TV program that if we're honest we know Jesus wouldn't sit down and watch with us?
My brothers and sisters, God is planning to give us the mastery of self. And I find that astonishing and wonderful. I'm just going to bring up a few more things. You see, godliness is Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect man. <laughs> but the astonishing thing for me is that God is not just prepared to hold Jesus up as a perfect standard. God wants Christ to be formed in us. The Father sent His Son to give His life for us, to clear sin out of the way. Listen, if you think that salvation is the end of God's purpose for you, you're missing the best part. Salvation is the start of God's purpose for you. It's not the end. Salvation is just the beginning of the wonders that God wants to do in your life. Look at this. We've got Hebrews 2.10, 17. God had, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. Because God's plan is that he would bring many sons to glory. Colossians 1.27 tells us, that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Christ in you, my brother. Christ in you, my sister, the hope of glory. God has put his hope within your heart, and his name is Jesus. And 1 John 3, 2, when he comes, we shall see him as he is, and we shall know him, or we shall be like him. Wow. I've studied Hebrew and Greek. I'm not a scholar, but I don't know what the Hebrew or the Greek is for wow, but I'm sure it's in the scripture somewhere. Wow. You see, what God is planning is humanity's restoration plus. And that plus, that little plus sign there, I put there for a reason. Because God is not satisfied with putting everything back to the point where we're all like Adam. That would be good in itself. And his plan is that we become like the last Adam. We're going to have the likeness of Jesus in us. Brothers and sisters, what a hope is that? Huh? You see, Adam was made in the image of God. Now if you go back to Genesis and look at Look at Adam being made in the image of God. That little word image in the Hebrew, it means a shadow. So Adam was like, it was like God created Adam and suddenly the shadow of God is passing over the earth and the earth begins to sense some of the presence of God. Okay? But what does the Bible say about the last Adam? It says this, it says, he's the exact representation of God's being. He's the image of the invisible God. That could never have been said of Adam even before the fall. You realize that? This is the eternal Son of God, my brothers and sisters. This is who is being formed in you and me right now. When we stand and praise, and listen, brothers and sisters, encouragement should always go where it's due. We're so bad at getting to funerals and saying wonderful things about people once they're dead that we should have said to them when they were alive to enjoy it and receive the encouragement. We all need encouragement. And I want to say to you today, there is such a blessing when Graham leads worship. There's an anointing on this guy.
still lead us in worship. It's absolutely beautiful. And I, I rejoice in it today. And when we are praising, you know what Psalm 8 says? That from the lips of children and infants, and that's not babies, folks, that's you and me. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of all your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And you know what the word silence is? It literally in Hebrew is, is Shabbat. It's the word for Sabbath. It turns Sabbath from a noun into a verb. It basically means that when we're praising the Lord, we are Sabbathing Satan. We're actually bringing hell's purposes to a grinding halt because something of heaven and earth are connecting with each other and the Lord indwells the praises of his people. And when we're praising God, hell has no choice but to take a Sabbath. Have a day off, Satan. It's like that. Have some time off. Go away. Go do your work somewhere else. Don't trouble the body of Christ. We're busy. We have business with our Father in heaven. Isn't our God good? Well, humanity's restoration has a plus after it. God doesn't want to just put everything back the way it was with Adam. He wants to do something better. He wants a new race of human beings who will look astonishingly like the Son of God. We will bear such a striking family resemblance to the Son of God that the Father will rejoice in it. Now, I'm sure I'm running out of time. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. Um, Amy Carmichael tells this, this lovely story of how she was visiting the Middle East and she came across an old uh, an old man who made jewellery and he smelted gold in the old fashioned way, time honoured way that had gone on for centuries and she watched this old man in his lodgings and he had what looked like just old terracotta tiles they were curved and he would put some gold in and some spices, some tamarind and then he would light a fire under the, under the tile and the gold would begin to melt and as soon as the gold melted up came sort of sediment from the bottom and these impurities he would skim them off uh, after the melting process and uh, then he would relight the fire only she noticed that the fire the second time was hotter than it had been the first so she stored that one away and just watched with interest and then someone came to the door to speak to him and he got up to answer the door but he put the fire out first and when he came back, she said to him, why did you extinguish the fire when you went to the door? Oh, he said, I never leave the gold unattended in the crucible. I always sit beside the gold. Can you hear Isaiah saying he shall sit as a refiner? Eh? I never leave the gold unattended in the crucible. Brothers and sisters, if you're going through the crucible right now, there is one sitting beside you. And that's an absolute certainty. He sits as a refiner. But the story's not over yet. Because he relit the fire again, and then it was hotter again. So she finally said, look, she says, how many times do you melt the gold like this? Oh, he says, I, I, I refine it seven times. <laughs> I wonder where he got that idea from. I refine it seven times. And she says, why is the fire hotter each time? 
he said because the purer the gold is, the hotter the fire has to be to, re to remove the last impurities. And then she said, and here's the big question, she said, how do you know when the gold is pure? Oh, he says, that's easy to answer. When I can look over the molten metal and see my reflection, see my own image, I know it's ready. We shall be like him. And the Father will, the refiner will look into our molten lives that he can mold and shape any way he wants. And he will see his likeness in us. Perfectly restored. As it was before. We serve a wonderful God. Eden, what happened in Eden will be reversed. But it won't just be reversed. It will be better. Because of Jesus. <clears throat> and so, we think for a moment from fear, contrast this with the misery of make-believe. Let's just look at this misery of make-believe. What does this mean for lots of people today? It's actually religion versus the gospel. Please, can we please stop calling Christianity a religion? Huh? It is not a religion. It's a relationship with the creator of the ends of the earth through his son Jesus. Religion is what we do to try and impress God. Christianity is who we are because we're impressed by God. The source is everything. When we read from 1 Timothy 4, Paul said that in later times some will abandon the faith, will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. The source is everything. If, if the religion has a deceitful, demonic, insincere source, and that's what happens when you've got a, a conscience that's seared as with a hot iron. If, if you, can, you can preach anything to anybody, you can tell them what they want to hear, you can raise a, a great crowd, you can fill a stadium full of people by telling them what they want to hear because you don't have a conscience that what you're telling them is trite. If you're insincere, you can always raise a crowd. If you're going to speak nothing but the truth, the whole truth, God's truth, then you will not have people crowding into sta stadia to hear you. There's a callousness about religion as it's taught. People are being given confidence in things they shouldn't have any confidence in at all. In, in, in the 16th century, a man by the name of Johannes Tetzel was going around the, the countryside in Europe uh, singing a little jingle, collecting money for the Vatican treasury. And what he was saying was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So in other words, come on, give me your money. Give me your money. Put the money in the, in the treasury. And, and the Pope will give an indulgence to your dead loved ones to spring them out of purgatory a bit earlier than they would have got out otherwise. It was complete tosh. There was no biblical basis for what he was saying. And it incensed Martin Luther. He knew the people were being deceived. There was a callousness about that kind of preaching. 
But here we are, folks. Let me show you what the mystery of make-believe, really, the, the misery of make-believe really is. There it is. Unimpressed, ungrateful piety. And you hear it. You hear it all over the place in the churches. When I was a, when I was a minister with, a, with a, an active congregation that I was visiting, I would hear people say things to me like, you know, they just had a, 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 a sudden redundancy or a bereavement in the family or something, and they would say to me, why would God let this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to me? Now, let's face it, folks, we can all understand why people would say that, can't we? I mean, you can't condemn people for feeling that way. Like God has abandoned them or that God has done something cruel that they didn't deserve. But let's unpack the question. Let's just see what lies behind it. Because, you see, as soon as you can say, why would God let this happen to me? Another way of saying it is, God owes me something better than this. I mean, look at what I've done for God. Look at all the baking I've done for the church. Look at all the bars of soap I've sold at the street fair for God. Look at all these good things I do for God. I helped an old lady across the street the other week, and I didn't kick my neighbor's cart when it, when it, when it made a mess in my carpet. God owes me for these things. You see, once we get to the, a frame of mind where subconsciously we think God is in our debt, then we're not going to be impressed by what God's done for us because we're sitting waiting for God to be impressed by what we've done for Him. Unimpressed, ungrateful piety. That is the misery of make-believe. That's religion, folks. That's what happens when you go and you light your little candles or you say, say several prayers that the, 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 the priest or the clergyman or someone has told you to do. And you go through all the ritual that you think puts you right with God. That's exactly what the Jews were doing in the first century when, when, when they wouldn't listen to Jesus. They were trying to establish their righteousness through ritual. And Jesus came to give righteousness to us at his own expense. John Bunyan was in a bad place one day. He was really, really unhappy about his spiritual state. And he felt deeply accused and deeply convicted of sin and quite miserable about it. And he went into a field and then all of a sudden he heard a voice within his spirit saying to him, your righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is in heaven. That's the reality, folks. Our righteousness is a man called Jesus Christ. You will, if, if, you have a, 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 if you serve God well today, your righteousness will not be better than it was yesterday. If you serve God badly today, your righteousness will not be worse than it was yesterday. Your righteousness is a fixed, established thing, and his name is Jesus. That's your righteousness. So let's just conclude now. If, if we get on this, 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 this silliness, this misery of make-believe, and we try a, a DIY form of salvation, we will end up looking for God's gratitude instead of being caught up in wonder, love and praise with gratitude to God for what he's done for us.
let's pray.